0: I'm ready. You ready for this? <clears throat> ready? Yes.
1: Begin? Begin? Okay. Ha, ha. Okay. Hello. And welcome to Space and Time, the podcast.
2: Dan's very proud and very competitive. And he comes in and said, Old Blue Hill's milk is, you know, the best, you know. And so Cooper goes, not so under his breath. You haven't had my family's milk, or you haven't had Sustainable Settings' raw dairy. And Dan was like, what?
1: This is Brooke Levan speaking here, co-founder and executive director at Sustainable Settings Ranch in Carbondale, Colorado. And he's talking about a little raw milk competition he had with chef Dan Barber, co-owner of Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barns, and the author of The Third Plate.
0: If you don't know who Dan Barber is, he is a pretty big deal. Blue Hill is a famous restaurant that can take months to get a reservation and costs several hundreds of dollars per person for dinner.
2: And he says, okay, chef, how about a blind taste test? He says, you're on. So, calls me up, says, dad, ship me a gallon of, you know, today's milk or, you know, the day you ship, and a uh, quart of cream.
0: So Brooke's son Cooper is the one who challenged Dan here. And long story short, sustainable settings wins almost unanimously.
2: And he, he again, is saying your flavor profiles are, you know, off the charts. And, and I said, well, I said, the, the, the only way we, one quote I think really did it for him. I explained some of the, the stewardship practices that we've combined you mm-hmm. know, to get where we are today. And, and he said, uh, I don't understand a lot of that. And I get some of that, but he said, um, "Where you got me is when you said that the flavor profiles we're getting Dan are because we honor all of the life on the ranch."
1: Sustainable settings is a whole systems learning center and working ranch, raw dairy, and it's the subject of our first episode. A look at the cosmic, biodynamic, beyond organic ranch directed by the infamous and sometimes controversial Brooke LeVan, alongside his wife, Rose LeVan.
0: I'm Holler Williams.
1: And I'm Miriam Schaefer, and we are Space and Time, a podcast that looks behind the scenes at the visible and invisible players involved in farming and gardening and why this matters.
0: We aren't here to tell you how to garden, but why to garden.
1: We want to connect our work to the larger world and explore how we interact with other natural forces.
0: So we may not always be talking about food and flowers. Why should more people farm, garden, and work outside? This is a question we will keep coming back to. But to start, here are a few stats
1: first did you know that the average age of the american farmer according to data collected from the usda in 2012 is 58.3 or in the same year the number of new farmers who have been on their current operation less than 10 years was down 20 percent from 2007. in short there are fewer farmers and the problems that farmers face are getting bigger
0: Mr. Levan is a certified permaculture designer and consultant and an alumnus of the Institute for Social Ecology. He has consulted, practiced, and taught sustainable design, green building, renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, wetland creation, and art and design. Mr. Levan is a Fulbright scholar and has extensive research and travel in Africa, Asia, and North and Central America. He has held faculty positions at Pomona College, the University of Connecticut, and James Madison University. He has published, lectured, and exhibited internationally. Mr. Levan is a National Advisory Board member of Solar Energy International and the Right Way Foundation, a founding board member of the Thompson Divide Coalition, and a board member of Grassroots TV. So we know Brooke. Miriam and I worked at Sustainable Settings, and that's how we met. As it was at the ranch, we would work the gardens and the dairy during the day, And in the evenings, we would sit around the outdoor kitchen, talking philosophy, food systems, while we ate snacks and drank cocktails.
1: So, sorry in advance for the sound of the chips, but we couldn't get Brooke to sit around that long without a snack. Obviously a cocktail. When we first started asking him some general questions regarding the most important things about farming, this is what he had to say.
2: Soil. All the life in the soil. The major decomposers. All the plants in the pasture and their different jobs, the broadleafs, the legumes, the grasses, right? The diversity, um, the cosmos, and the subtle forces, the, the rhythms in the cosmos, I'm talking about cosmic nutrition.
0: We should pause here and take a moment to explain a little about this idea of the cosmos. As far as abstract, big-picture ideas go, the cosmos is hard to beat. For most people, the word is a synonym for the whole universe. In fact, it is an ancient Greek word that meant order, but was not widely used as a term until the middle of the 19th century, when Alexander von Humboldt wrote about it in his multi-volume treatise called Cosmos.
1: Humboldt was a Prussian intellectual who visited the United States and explored Central and South America between 1799 and 1804. While he was deeply interested in collecting data and making scientific observations, Humboldt was unique in how he presented the information he discovered. His focus was really on the big picture. Humboldt sought to explain how everything, and I mean everything, from the planets down to individual trees and people, work together and influence one another in one enormous system of order, the cosmos.
0: This kind of thinking is actually incredibly important. Humboldt lived between 1769 and 1859 in an era of scientific breakthroughs and discoveries that divided the natural world into smaller and more specific labels and classifications. Scientists were becoming more specialized and their techniques and technologies were advancing. Humboldt, however, was a polymath. He examined many areas of study, such as art, literature, history, economics, and sought to find the larger connections that made up the cosmos. You may think this approach does not sound quite as viable as the standard scientific method that relies on verifiable hard data, but it's worth noting that Alexander von Humboldt was the first person to observe and describe human induced climate change.
2: Agriculture has Contemporary agriculture and science, which is a good tool, has dominated our thinking. And we've lost our heart. And we've lost our intent. And we don't know that we're not intimate with the land and the life in the land anymore. We have severed our relationship to the vertical. Call it consciousness. Call it God. Call it whatever you want to call it. I
0: like that way of describing it, the vertical. And Mm -hmm. so
2: what we have done, permaculture too, organic farming is all horizontal.
0: When Brooke talks about our relationship to the vertical, he is really getting at something that aligns with Humboldt. For Brooke, having a relationship with the vertical means being able to connect one's work with larger and more abstract forces. It means thinking of tasks less as daily chores that are necessary to get to other tasks – Brooke would call this the horizontal – and more as forms of interaction with forces and networks that make up the cosmos.
2: And because now we're like six years into this more intensified biodynamic and beyond kind of treatment, mm-hmm. our place is alive on a way. And it's not me. Mm-hmm. It's not anybody here. Mm-hmm. It's through us. And it's through our acknowledging them mm-hmm. and being You're a great conduit. Angry.
0: So I studied biodynamics in England before I met Miriam and Brooke at Sustainable Settings. For the most part, I didn't realize what I was getting into before I began my study. My cousin had graduated from the same program and had good things to say about it. I had already been learning about organic agriculture and had occasionally heard about biodynamics. There was mention about planting with the phases of the moon, that seemed legit. There was also mention that you bury cattle horns full of manure into the soil for six months at a time, that seemed less legit. But I've always been attracted to mystical, off-the-beaten pathways of being, so I decided to go for it. But when I got there, it went completely over my head. I took in a lot of information as a skeptic at first, for sure, because it challenged my worldview to its foundations. At the end of the day, the real struggle of the biodynamic movement is exactly that. It challenges our worldview. But there are many things about biodynamic practices that are amazing, and could logically be accepted by most people. Demeter, the certifying body for biodynamics, has standards that most people already interested in organics can stand behind. For instance, Demeter requires biodiversity in ecosystem preservation, soil husbandry, livestock integration, and the prohibition of GMOs, and most importantly, the viewing of the farm as a living, holistic organism. These are all things with which progressive people within agriculture can agree. Agreeability breaks down when we get into how things are viewed. And this is where biodynamics takes a sharp turn from being an agricultural science to being an agricultural philosophy. Biodynamics was developed in the early 20th century by Austrian philosopher Rudolf Steiner, who some people also know from Waldorf education or the threefold social order. He was also a self-proclaimed clairvoyant. That alone discredits the biodynamic movement for most people. When you get into the literature about biodynamics, There is a lot of speak about increasing the living qualities of plants and animals, of encouraging cosmic energy, and of creating environments in which more spiritual beings can flourish and work, quote-unquote, behind the scenes.
2: When we share the biodynamics and the other kind of work we're doing, that is the more vertical, Mm -hmm. with other agrarians, other farmers, they go, oh, that's cool, I get it, my heart, yeah, intention, yeah. It's a lot of extra work. But what I tell them is, you know what? We have more staff than we've ever had. Because we're in relationship with all of the life, they're working on a level that is we couldn't pay for.
0: Wait, so you figuratively have more staff than
2: you We are. figuratively have the more staff. gnomes and the selves and staff.
0: the salamanders.
2: That's right, that's right. And it's showing up in the flavor.
0: To get to the root of biodynamics, To really attempt to uncover its inner workings requires a shift in worldview. This shift in worldview is what I find so captivating about biodynamics. It's a shift to a more holistic understanding of our living Earth and how all of its organisms collaborate. Brooke had a beautiful, unique way of describing this worldview, the vertical.
2: There's a genius in all of us, each of us. Mm-hmm. And there's a genius in the place. Mm-hmm. And we've lost touch with that. And we're not in touch with it anymore. And what we're trying to do here, these last 20 years, mm-hmm. is to get back in relationship.
1: So how does that look here at sustainable settings?
2: So that's what we're doing here. We're not farming. Yeah, we're so not you ranching. Wouldn't,
1: you wouldn't so you'd just... say farming is a byproduct of something or Our bigger.
2: food... Is a byproduct of us reconnecting to this place and to acknowledging all of the life that we're dependent on and work with every day. Our job is to marry, our job is to marry things. We greet us, we buy a seed from another place that maybe or may not have produced it with love. And it comes in the mail and it arrives. It's a powerful, packed little part of life. And what do we do? Just go poke it in the ground, or do we say, "Hey, welcome, thanks for coming," and you know what? We're going to work together, and well, let's do this together, and let's really grow beautiful things. And then you walk by it when it pops up, and you go, "Hey, cool, nice, glad you came." And you know what? For then it then it turns and gets really pretty, and it flowers, and before it fruits, and you go, "Wow, you are beautiful," and that matters. And then it fruits out, and then you sit at a table, and you share it with people, and you do a blessing.
1: Okay, that is really interesting to me because the farmer is really the, the, like, the mediator, like bringing all of the elements together at the right time in order to make the product. It's sort of like a manager. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at it because normally we see things so isolated and we don't think about all of the different factors involved. We're like, oh, I did this and I I won this and I, you know, me, me, me or you, you, you without thinking of like, hey, we're like all part of this. And so it forces each individual to think of themselves as like part of a team. So it's like, I'm a farmer. I'm on like team natural world with like sun and soil and water. Those are like all my team members. Dream team. It's the dream team. Yeah, teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs>
2: biodynamic.
0: Okay, let's pause here. We should mention again that Brooke was not always a farmer. His work and his biodynamic practices were actually the result of his experience as a ceramic artist. We spent some time talking about how his pursuit of art led him to farming.
2: 20 years ago, we took a hard turn and reinvented ourselves. We were artists. I was teaching good places. I was interviewing at UC Davis, right? Good school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Other places. And we got back from China, which is another story. (laughs) But (laughs) that that was a trigger for us to Mm -hmm. finally say, making gallery and museum objects didn't make sense. You have to be smart in a lot of different ways and you have to be holistic thinker Mm -hmm. to bring it all together and that's the brilliance of farmers. Mm -hmm. Farmers are not dumb or stupid. They are bringing together a biology and all these other sciences.
1: Brooks sought to connect his art to more tangible and practical elements. He wanted his work to do and mean more than an expression of only himself.
2: So we understood in our work for years, two or three years before, had really been about going to a community and saying, hey, we're artists, we understand metaphor and form and color Mm -hmm. and projects and how to get things done, Mm -hmm. but we're not going to plop our bent steel ego giant thing in your park that you don't know what it means, we're going to come to you and have town meetings, and we're going to say, what do you need, and we can help you make something that you can make with us, and it's meaningful and lasting for you because pretty soon we're gone, and you, so that's what our work turned into, and so sustainable settings, if you want to complete this thread, in art lingo, is our largest site-specific community-based public work to date. Not that we need recognition from the art world. We don't Mm -hmm. care.
0: Brooks' desire to tie his sense of creativity to the practical led him to craft a research proposal in which he would explore the applications of art for a small community in Ghana.
2: What the request for the research was was to uh, understand their cosmological origins and their thinking and how that is manifest in physical products. As an artist, I was interested in how does idea become real, and when I in this multicultural mess we're in, it's too hard to understand. And so, part of the request was to go to a mono, more of a monoculture, and try to understand their mytho-religious perceptions to see how that affected what they made and how they greeted nature and created life, created a life. And so that's what we did. And one of the main ways into the culture was through the building activity and the farming too. We went through all the political stuff and it took time for, we, through, the, through the national and to the regional government. Finally, we got to the 10 paramount chiefs of the region. We told them of our study, they all understood it. And then we waited for a week, 10 days to, and we started getting calls. Oh, so-and-so, his family, is from this chieftaincy and said you could come and live with them and and help build their house. And uh, got down to two people and we chose Abeke and Awansani um, who were in Sirigu, Northern Ghana, uh, really just a 20 minute walk to Burkina in the North, Basu. And we were there for nine months and we went through the building activity with them. And we're also interviewing them. And so what we're learning how much intention and how powerful. I got there with my master's degree Mm
0: -hmm. and I
2: was illiterate Mm -hmm. in their context.
0: For sure. When he uses the word intention, he's talking about like, where is your heart at when you're doing anything? The vertical is what he, he's talking, intention is the vertical. The idea is that all of your actions and your thoughts behind your actions influence everything that you do. And so if you approach your farm with heart, Your farm is going to be better off. And that's like one of the background
2: ideas with biodynamics. What we learned there was (laughs) that when we came home, really you learn when you get back, right? Mm -hmm. And so that we live in these dead boxes called homes, and I don't care how much you imbue them with your personality. They're still not intended from the foundation work up to really be any more than economic concerns, right? Mm -hmm. and craftsmanship or something like that but they're not imbued with the vertical they're not imbued with their understanding of the cosmic rhythms and how that affects and their the intention
0: if we just made a structure as if our intention for building a structure was to just keep us out of the rain that's all right but like what if the intention for building the structure was to have it be this container where you're creating like a family and somehow you build the structure around that idea of community and not just about protecting you from the rain.
1: But what's wrong with creating the structure with the intent of rain shelter? Isn't that an intention
0: tip? totally, Totally, but I think that maybe where lack of intention can fall short is where it's like if we're only thinking about some things and not thinking about how our intention behind our actions can affect other things in more subtle ways. Because it's like something I've had experiences with was where I walk onto a biodynamic farm and there's just like this feeling of just like this place is special and I think that a lot of people can relate with that when you walk into a really nice home Maybe it was a home that was like specially built when somebody had this idea. They wanted the walls to curve a certain way or the colors to reflect different ways. You know, that's all about like interior design. But there is a way to create these, speci- these spaces where you walk in and you're like, there's something special about this place.
2: Oh, the first building they built is where the old woman cooks. And we go, okay, we wrote it down. Where the old woman cooks. Okay, this is the first building, right? And there's no windows in it. And there's only an entry that you have to go through two other rooms to get to. And you can't see the entry from the gate of the compound, right? Hmm. We find out. Mm-hmm. At first, we we're just building the first oval room. Well, after a while, Awansani calls me in and she says, come here. And... and, and so I'm filming, I got a little camera and I'm, you know, doing a little video, and she said, you know, I'm beginning to learn the language a little. And so she has it in her hand a little gourd with these little dried pieces of skin in it, right? And shea nuts, which are like walnuts, okay? See, you know, can you see a so like walnut that's shell? That's where like, shea butter comes Walnut down. shell, yeah, for shea butter. Yeah. So the, the the shea nut shell looks like a walnut shell. Mm-hmm. So she had those, and she had these little dried pieces of skin. And so she took one of the pieces of skin, set a, set a name, and closed it up, and she buried it. She pushed it into the arch of this room where the old woman cooked and mudded it over. You, you couldn't see it, right? You couldn't see it, right? So she did that and she put the nuts, she put the skin inside the nuts all the way up and down this this uh, arch into the room. The only entry into where the old woman cut. And so I'm going Okay, this is significant, I guess. And I also go in and I look, and in the room is a grinding stone, is a is a basket of millet, which is what they grow, is dried, a smoked uh, guinea fowl, and water, and da 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 da, right? Ingredients, yeah. right? So I have I wait for my informant, who's uh, Joe Joanani, He's my he's an English teacher, and he says, I said, what was that? He goes, oh. He said, um, those are the umbilical cords of all the living family. Each one of those in the nut, right? The little piece of skin is part of the umbilical cord that dropped off when they were babies and they were saved and they were put in this vulva, this entry. Hmm. So this, where the old woman cooks, which is what I got months before, was the womb Spiritual matriarchal—it was the matriarchal vertical place mm. of the entire clan of that family. Mm. You understand? Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of layers of meaning that I left there with, like, wow. And all the things in that room mm-hmm. were in, were infused, or inhabited, or imbued with the matriarchal forces of all the all the female ancestors. And so the grain, the mother of all mothers was informing all of the grain and the smoked guinea fall that were ground up and only used in rituals. This was a, the most sacred place for that whole compound, that whole house. I was illiterate.
1: Brooks sees them imbuing their tangible and practical work with meaning and intent. He sees them connect what they do to the vertical, which is what Brooks strives for in farming.
2: a byproduct of us reconnecting to this place and to acknowledging all of the life that we're dependent on and work with every day and it's showing up in the flavor and it's showing up in the abundance and the quality in the hay and in the milk
1: and mm-hmm.
2: this quality and quantity is qual- qualitative and quantitative what's happening here and finally we have the proof
1: the proof is in the pudding. And the pudding is at sustainable settings. Yeah, this
0: ain't no cozy shack
1: pudding. <laughs> it's here. a byproduct of the cows. Do you make pudding with dairy? I've had a, this is so bolder. I've had avocado I've pudding. I've had chia pudding. <laughs> how he talks about our connection to place and i think it's kind of just funny or ironic that you know i i grew up in new york and you grew up Hannah in philadelphia and we're here in boulder so obviously (laughs) we um are not very connected to where we grew up and so this whole idea of connecting to a place and having that be important has always been very interesting to me and I've never quite understood it. Really?
0: Because I feel like if you're not connecting to place what are you even doing? Well maybe there's like this is like what is the 20 what does it mean to connect a place in the 21st century where or- a lot of young people end up not living where they grew up, you know? It's like, I think that connecting to place is really important now, maybe even more important than it's ever been, because part a lot of the reasons why we're having all the problems that we're seeing with the environment is because people aren't connected to place. But maybe we need to define what that even means. Like, when I hear connect to place, it's about, like, Seeing where you are in your particular bioregion and what's growing around you, what the climate is like, what's the geological features, how do you grow something in this place, what's your hardiness zone. That's like the beginnings of connecting to place and then there's like the tracking animal movements. That's what I think connecting to places and what I think you probably have done a lot living in Colorado too, Miriam, because you love the outdoors and whatnot. You've connected to place here. Like, that's what I think connecting to places. And that's what I think most
1: people don't even know, you know, like... They just connect to my space. My My space, space, not my place. That's, like, so 15 (laughs) years ago.
0: I feel like gardening is the gateway to understanding earth processes because it's so simple. I used to have this before I learned how to garden. I was afraid to grow a seed because I thought I was going to fuck up or something. I was like, oh, this is so complicated. I can't just grow a seed. Like, that sounds so complicated. But it's something that is so mind-bogglingly simple. <laughs> it's like you put the seed in a growing medium and you add water and a little bit of light in the right soil temperature, and it just goes. And you don't even need all of those things. And so I feel like when you have that tactile experience and visual experience of growing food, growing a vegetable start putting seeds in the ground to make salads, like, that's your beginning into seeing this larger picture, which is, like, whole ecological and climatological processes. It's becoming aware of place. Special thanks to Brooke and Rose Levan for providing so much great content, and to Lucas Schaefer, our head of research and development and chief sound engineer for the podcast.
1: For more information about Space and Time, blogs, research, and our services, please visit us at spaceandtimegardens.com. Time like the herb. If there is a topic you would like for us to explore in the podcast, if you or someone you know would like to participate in an interview, or if you are in the Boulder area and in need of gardening and or landscaping services, please contact us.
0: You can email us at info at spaceandtimegardens.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook.
1: Thank you for listening
0: and stay tuned.